Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This episode aims to wrap up our early church history class, and what a journey it's been. Today we'll cover relics and pilgrimage, Emperor Zeno and Justinian, as well as the theological battles that continue to rage in the 5th and 6th centuries. Unsurprisingly, the Christological controversy of the 5th century did not come to an end when the emperor endorsed the Council of Chalcedon of 451, which declared Jesus to have two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably, whatever that means. In addition to covering the Second Council of Constantinople of 553, we'll also briefly consider how the Dual Natures Doctrine continued to foment division, resulting in the Third Council of Constantinople in 681 and the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. So hopefully this episode will fill in some of the gaps that we've left along the way, leaving you with not only a good understanding of the first 500 years of Christianity, but also setting you up to delve into the second 500 years of Christianity, if you would like to do that. Here now is episode 504, Early Church History 22, Byzantine Empire, from Constantine to Justinian. Diocletian reigned from 284 to 305, and he's the one that started the Tetrarchy which is where you divide the Roman Empire into east and west. That was an administrative decision of Diocletian to deal with the perennial problem of succession. Every time a Caesar died, there was a power struggle. So he said, all right, we're going to have an Augustus in the east and an Augustus in the west and a Caesar in the east and a Caesar in the west. And when the Augustus either dies or retires... The Caesar becomes the new Augustus in the East and in the West and appoints themselves a new Caesar who will be their successor. So you have four rulers, hence the word tetrarchy. And this didn't last because of this guy, Constantine I, also called Constantine the Great, who decided he wanted to be the only Augustus of the entire Roman Empire. But uh, he had, everyone had started thinking in terms of East and West for administration purposes because of Diocletian. And so Constantine the Great, or Constantine the First, who was a ruthless man, a very accomplished military strategist, he just won, 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 won all his battles, he decided that he wanted to seize power for himself. He wanted to be the sole ruler, and he was by the year 324. But we're not going to cover everything about Constantine. We've looked at Constantine previously. But if you're going to date the beginning of the Byzantine Empire, you probably would date it with Constantine because he's the one who said, I don't like Rome. I want my own city. And he founded New Rome, a new capital for the empire, and called it Constantinople, which translated to English is roughly Constantine City. Constantine's polis, Constantinople. In 330, Constantinople was finished. It was founded upon the old village of Byzantium. This is a a little known village or town that is on the border 
of where Asia and Europe meet together uh, at the Bosphorus Strait. And it connects the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea, which then connects to the Mediterranean Sea, which then connects to the Atlantic Ocean. It's a very strategic location. And Constantine also liked it because uh, Constantinople, or Byzantium as it was called before he built his city there, was also near the east. And the east, especially Asia Minor, is where the money was. And so Rome was, was kind of like old news, and it was, it was too hot in the summer, and it was a little swampy, and Rome was too hard to defend. Constantinople was Constantine's brilliant idea. We don't call the empire that was capitaled in Constantinople the Constantinopolitan Empire probably because it's too hard to say, Constantinopolitan. We call it the Byzantine Empire. After its previous name, before it was known as Constantinople, Byzantium was the name of that town. So I don't know if that helped you understand something, but the Byzantines called themselves Romans all the way up until 1453, when Constantinople finally fell to the Muslim armies who had built a cannon so big it could actually take down the walls. They still thought of themselves as Romans. But as historians, we look back and call them Byzantines because we like to distinguish between the earlier Roman Empire and the later Roman Empire that survives in the East only, and we call that East only part the Byzantine Empire. Constantinople was strategic because it was surrounded on three sides by water. Let me tell you something. If you build a wall next to water, it's going to be really hard for any armies to get up there. So it's very defensible. Constantine had great access, like I already mentioned, and it was the first exclusively Christian city. Constantinople also had a massive hippodrome. The hippodrome is where you have horse races. This is going to come up later. You have a chariot behind a horse. It's kind of like old-school NASCAR, where uh, they're going around and around and around, and a lot of people are watching it for the accidents. You know, watching it for like when the chariot gets too close to the wall and poof, blows up and, you know, there's blood and gore, you know, all the stuff that people love to watch in sports. In uh, 332, Constantine began distributing food in Constantinople. It was like a, a major, major city out of nothing. Constantine just like brought it forth. Incredible man. Only six years it took to build it. He gave some incentives, got people to move in. And Constantinople suddenly was a thing. It had its own senate, it had its own churches. It was the first founded to be a Christian city. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about pilgrimage and relics because I haven't talked about them at all in this class so far. And they were something that started in this period with especially Constantine's mother. Constantine's mother, Helena, famously had gone to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem and had founded these different churches there that still stand to this day, by the way. And Helena allegedly found the true cross and sent part of it home to her son, Constantine, who then put it in a pillar in Constantinople. So in Constantinople, inside one of the pillars is a piece of wood that he thought was the cross on which Christ was killed. Therefore, it had sacred powers or something like that to protect. In 381, a very... A wealthy woman named Egeria went on a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, the Sea of Galilee, 
Constantinople and a number of other places. And she wrote a travelogue to her friends called The Pilgrimage of Egeria. So you can read about her travels, and this popularized the idea of traveling to holy sites. Let me talk to you about relics. Relics are a body part or some sort of material associated with a saint or a holy person. It was believed to have miraculous powers. Martin of Tours, in particular, who died in 397, was famous for his cloak. Have you ever heard of the cloak of St. Martin? What happened with him is that he was a soldier, and he was, he was turning to Christ. He was becoming a Christian. He was a catechumen. And one day he was traveling along on his horse, and he saw a beggar who was not wearing much clothing. And so he took off his, his cape, and he cut it in half, and he gave half of it to the beggar. So he's famous for doing that. Then when he died, people started to, to honor or venerate his cape. And so eventually this cloak would be carried into battle by kings. And people would have you touch it and swear. And then it was considered to be binding because you touched the cloak of St. Martin. Uh, the priest assigned to, this is just going to blow your mind, the priest assigned to watch over the cloak of St. Martin, the cloak, the word for cloak is kappa. The priest assigned to watch over the cloak was called a capilanu, which became the name for any priest in the military, which is where we get the word chaplain today. It actually comes from the word for cloak in Latin. A small church built for a relic, could be a bone, could be a cloak, could be anything that has association, physical thing that has association with a famous dead person that had been holy. A church built for a relic is called a capella, which is the word for a little cloak, because it was built for St. Martin's cloak. They built a little building for it, right? And that comes into English eventually through French as chapel. So a chapel is, we use the word chapel to refer to any small church, sort of like out in the country or something like that. And originally it was a church to hold a relic. The first one, famous one at least, being this uh, cloak of St. Martin. Pilgrimage and relics then combined in the Byzantine Empire where people would take holy trips or pilgrimages to sites that had relics. I myself have been to such a site. I wasn't a pilgrim. I didn't even know what I was there for. I was just like, a dumb tourist, pretty much. <laughs> and I went to the house of St. Mary outside of Ephesus, and there were all these people tying these little uh, cloths, like, like white cloths, to the fence with prayers on it because it, that's, they believe that that's her house from the first century. We talked to the priest in charge. He said, we have no reason to believe this is Mary's house. But there have been some miracles reported, so it's pro it probably is true. But we have no good evidence. Archaeologically, we know it's a house from the first century, but do, how do we know it's Mary's house? We don't know. So there you have it. That was a 21st century story about a, a pilgrimage to, uh, I guess that would count as a relic. Not really, just a house. So this was a big thing that got set in motion, and then this really develops in the medieval period, in the Middle Ages, and it gets really big but I wanted to mention it. All right, back to Byzantine history. Theodosius I reigned from 379 to 392. As you recall, in the year 378, at the Battle of Adrianople, the Eastern Emperor died at the hands of the Visigoths at the Battle of Adrianople. Uh, 
Theodosius was the emperor next, and Theodosius was the one that established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he outlawed pagan sacrifice. So it's like, we're the Roman Empire, we're the ho- now it's the Holy Roman Empire. Not just the Roman Empire, now it's holy. Because we're not going to have these pagan sacrifices. We're going to have one branch of Christianity endorsed by the government. And that is the Trinitarian form as described in 381, that was during Theodosius' reign, at the Council of Constantinople. And he declares this, the version of Christianity that is true and legal. He says, everyone else, every other kind of Christian is, quote, demented and insane and shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches. This is official Roman imperial law decree in, later on, the book called the Theodosian Code. Theodosian Code is a collection of laws from Theodosius and previous emperors back to Constantine. Okay, at this point, Catholic no longer refers to, there's no way to make Catholic refer to the Christian church at large. Catholic refers to the branch of Christianity that the Roman government supports. Does that make sense? Because half of the Christians are Arians, and they're not Catholics. So Catholic can't mean universal. It has to mean one branch of Christians. And eventually, over time, we we use the phrase Roman Catholic to refer to those who are attached to the Bishop of Rome and in communion with him. All right, so we talked about a lot of this stuff before. I'm just going to briefly review it when we looked at the Aryan kingdoms. But uh, in 410, King Alaric, the Visigothic king, sacked Rome. The people of Constantinople said, oh, shoot, Rome got sacked. This is unprecedented. We got to build a wall. So they built this wall. It's credited to Theodosius, who was uh, pretty young at the time, Theodosius II. This would be the grandson of the Theodosius we were just talking about, Theodosius I. Theodosius II was kind of like a child emperor. So, like his, his adult handlers made this decision, but he gets the credit for it. The Theodosian walls were 60 feet tall, and there were three of them. So you get over one wall, and now you're in no man's land between two walls, and, and all the the soldiers on the, the higher wall are raining down fire on you and arrows and, and spears and burning stuff. I mean, it was impossible to take Constantinople. Lord knows people tried from time to time. But after these walls were built because of the sack of Rome, Constantinople was impregnable until the cannon in 1453. So... I guess something good came out of that. In 455, the Vandals sacked Rome. Rome just got knocked around. It was like a punching bag in the 5th century. In 468, there was a joint invasion of Western and Eastern forces. The Western Augustus and the Eastern Augustus said, let's take back North Africa. The Eastern emperor, a man at this time called Leo I, spent over 7 million coins, which is probably his entire treasury, to raise an army and send them to North Africa. They put together a force of 400,000 soldiers between East and West and sent them all to North Africa to attack the Vandals. And the Vandals won. Somehow or other, the whole thing was a debacle. The ships were destroyed, and the Vandals won. 
In 476, Odoacer deposed the last Roman Augustus, whose name was Romulus Augustulus. This is the last official Roman emperor. If you want to date the fall of Rome, it's the year 476. But it really wasn't that much of a fall. Most of the people in Rome wouldn't, wouldn't have noticed that there was a fall. It's like, oh, we're not in the Roman Empire anymore. It's like... It's not that simple. History is a lot messier than the version we, we uh, typically think of. But anyhow, Romulus, if you, if you ever read about uh, Rome, the city of Rome, is the mythical founder of the city. Last Roman emperor was named after the founder of Rome itself. And Augustus, after whom he was named, was the first Roman emperor. So he, he, was, he, was, he had like the perfect name to be the last guy. <laughs> and uh, Odoacer took out Romulus Augustulus in Ravenna, where he was hiding. He, he got all the way there, and, you know, he's just a teenager. And Odoacer's like, ah, fine, I'll just exile you. You're, you're so irrelevant. I'm not even going to kill you. And so, like, we didn't even have a record of how Romulus Augustulus died. Augustulus is probably means little Augustus, but uh, he was a pretty irrelevant guy. Odoacer... Uh, told the Eastern Emperor Zeno, hey, I'm just going to run things for you, buddy. I'm, I know I'm a barbarian, but uh, you know, I'm, we're, we're part of the Roman Empire too. And uh, I'm just going to run the West. I'll be your client. However, in the East, they were worried. Uh, the emperor named Zeno was worried about other things, so he couldn't really do anything at that time. And so it just kind of kept going. Everything just kept going. It's just you had a barbarian or German. It's another way to say barbarian. Actually, there's some debate about Odoacer. They don't know if he's Germanic or from the Huns or somebody else. Um, but anyhow, in Rome, people increasingly looked to the bishops who stayed through everything as the leaders because they had lost their Roman government, and now they had this Visigothic, Vandal, and then Ostrogothic government. Uh, so the government kept changing, and they were Arians anyhow, so they didn't really like them. So the bishops ended up holding a lot of sway with the people over time, and the clergy. And they became the prime negotiators. The clergy became the negotiators. It would be the, the, the bishop of Rome, Leo, very strong man. He would come out of the city of Rome... And he would be the one to negotiate with the Roman emissaries or the barbarian emissaries and try to bring peace to the city. In 482, Emperor Zeno came out with a document called the Hanaticon. This was an attempt to reconcile monophysites and diophysites. So, like I mentioned to you last time, when we looked at the controversies of the 5th century, Chalcedon... Also, sometimes people call it Chalcedon or Chalcedon. This council in 451 did not settle the matter. It made a decision, yes, but it, it didn't win anybody's hearts. <laughs> people still believe what they believe. And so this controversy continued to rage. And Zeno said, I will bring peace to the situation. And I have this document called Hanoticon. I'm going to condemn Eutychus and Nestorius and I'm going to approve the 12 anathemas of Cyril. And this will encourage the Egyptian Christians and the Monophysite-leaning Christians to rejoin the church. Both sides said they didn't like Zeno's Hanoticon. Both sides said, we don't know what you're trying to say here. We just we think you're wrong. 
and it totally failed to make anybody happy. The controversy continued through Zeno's reign and his successor, a man named Anastasius. It's a word for resurrection in Greek. Anastasius' reign as well, he was tolerant towards the Monophysites, and the controversy continued to rage. In 488, Zeno did something brilliant. He was constantly under threat by the Ostrogoths because they were right next to Constantinople, and he was worried that they were going to attack the city because they're just attacking stuff here and there, hither and yon. And so he convinced Theodoric, the ruler of the Ostrogoths, to go attack Italy. Just go attack Italy. Who's in Italy? Odoacer, this barbarian king. And this will be Zeno's, this is a brilliant plan. This is a good example of Byzantine politics at its, at its finest. Now he kills two birds with one stone. That's our way of saying it. Now he can visit revenge upon Odoacer for daring to depose the legitimate Roman ruler, Romulus Augustulus. And he can get rid of the Ostrogoths who are in his backyard and are threatening him. Excellent plan. So Theodoric goes out and he wages war, takes him some years. He starts in 488. In 490, he's basically got supremacy. And then in 493, he signs a treaty with Odoacer and they have a special dinner to commemorate the peace treaty, at which moment Theodoric pulls out his big old sword and cuts Odoacer from collarbone to thigh. Theodoric then ruled the West on behalf of Zeno in Constantinople, but let's be honest, he was a barbarian, he was an Ostrogoth, and he had his own Ostrogothic kingdom, which was like half the size of the, of the Roman Empire almost, and it was totally out of the eastern hands. So at this point, the Roman Empire survives in the east, and we call it the Byzantine Empire. The west is lost. You've got the Ostrogothic Empire, you've got the Vandal Empire, you've got these different kingdoms, I shouldn't say empire, but these different kingdoms throughout, which I showed you when we did the Aryan kingdoms, how they kind of carved up the world. Then you had the Franks up in the north and the west there. All right, let's talk about Justinian. Justinian I lived from 482 to 565. If you're good at math, you'll know that that's a long life. Justinian had been adopted by an emperor named Justin. Justinian's real name was Peter. But he changed his name to Justinian to honor his uncle, Justin, who uh, sort of adopted him and got him educated. He was educated in theology and law and history. He grew up speaking Latin, perhaps the last Byzantine Empire to, emperor to grow up speaking Latin. Uh, they would all be Greek after this. Justinian was brilliant. He allegedly never slept. You know, he was an energetic and very capable man. He had been groomed for decades to be the next emperor. And so in 525, he was declared co-emperor because Justin, the current older emperor, was you know, nearing death. And then in 527, it was a smooth transition of power to Justinian. He just kind of stepped right into the role that people already saw him as anyhow, and he began his reign. I have to say a word about his wife. Uh, I won't go into too much detail. A lot of rumors about her. Theodora was her name. I think she was beautiful. Gonna, I'm going to give her that right there. I think she was beautiful. Allegedly, she was an actress, and there's some question about what her act was, but it was not wholesome. Okay, I'm just going to say that. And it was not considered proper for a person of nobility, 
like say you're going to be the next emperor, to marry an ex-actress. Actresses, actors, show people, they were like considered at the level of prostitutes in their society. Like just the worst, of, you know, like you, you like spit as an actor walked by. You just, oh, look at that actor. It's the exact opposite of our world today. It's like an actor walks by, oh, oh, let me take your picture, right? It's like totally the opposite. They were, they were persona non grata, and um, so that was Theodora. And Justinian said, I just, I, just, I just love this woman so much. He asked his uncle, the emperor, Justin, he said, can you change the law so I can marry her? And he did. So they got married, and they were this unconventional, youngish couple. She was 20 years younger than he. He was probably about in his 40s when he became the emperor. She's in her 20s. And they are this exciting, full-of-life new couple that is going to like just take on the world and rule Constantinople. I once stood in a church that had monogrammed columns. Justinian on one column, Theodora on the next. Justinian, Theodora, all the way down. Quite a couple. In 528, Justinian didn't take any time to get going. He began a legal reform, a judicial reform. Roman law was a mess. There were too many precedents, too many conflicting rulings over the years, and there were three codices of laws or books of laws that had been gathered together, but they contradicted each other. And so it was hard to know how to find in any particular case. So Justinian put together a 10-man commission led by John the Cappadocian, and in 14 months, they produced a Constitutio Summa in 529. It still had some contradictions, so Justinian went through it with his man, Trebonian. Trebonian is the, the genius behind a lot of this stuff, because this guy just like seemed to know the whole law code by heart, and he was really able to then work with Justinian to issue dozens of decisions where there were conflicts and to harmonize and uh, summarize all of Roman law code. Justinian's law code becomes the basis of European law code, which then subsequently becomes the basis of American law code. So this is all going back to Justinian. Huge, huge endeavor, contribution to human civilization, we could say. Uh, and he has interesting laws in there that give women some rights, give children some rights, some things you wouldn't expect for somebody in the 6th century. In the year 530, so that's on his good side. On his bad side, we'll see the next thing here. In the year 532, there were riots that broke out. They're called the Nika riots. Nika is the Greek second-person imperative singular for the word conquer. That's right. So like, if I'm telling you to conquer, I say Nika. You conquer, it's like a command. You conquer, okay? I'll explain, I'll explain. This is from Lars Brownworth, who wrote the best book on the Byzantine Empire ever, uh, at least if you're looking for entertainment and readability. Not the most thorough book, kind of like a small paperback, but anyhow. He says, Constantinople had its fanatical sports fans who could occasionally engage in acts of hooliganism and generally considered the success of their teams to be more important than life itself. Sounds like people today. Called the blues and the greens after the colors they would don to show their support, the factions were mostly made up of youths and members of the lower classes who had few other ways to vent their energy. 
Showing up at the Hippodrome to watch the chariot races, they would sit in their own sections and try to drown out the opposing side with mildly insulting chants. Most emperors and their families maintained a careful neutrality when it came to the rowdy circus factions, spouting bland assertions of support depending on the company they were in, but Justinian, with his typical disregard for tradition, made no attempt to hide his passionate support for the blues. As I mentioned to you before, Constantinople had a famous hippodrome where you have chariot races drawn by horses. This figures in very largely in the reign of Justinian. At the hippodrome, somebody shouted out to Justinian. Justinian took his seat. Everyone can see when the emperor is present. He's now present. Somebody from the crowd shouted out, I wish your father had never been born. He, was, he didn't like Justinian. And people were upset with Justinian because they thought he was breaking the rules, you know, uh, doing these new things. There was, the taxes were really high, and he had these guys in, in power that were managing the taxes, and they were closing all these loopholes, made him very unpopular with the wealthy. And also, there was a lot of corruption. And so people didn't like Justinian. And this guy shouted this out, and the crowd shouted along with him and agreed with him. We're talking about 30,000 people here in the Hippodrome. This is, this is a lot of people to have against you. And then a riot broke out. So Justinian, being a smart man, went home. He went to the palace and he fled. Three days later, he decided, all right, well, let's, let's put the games back on. We, you know, we had to postpone them because the riot broke out. Let's put the games back on. Everybody assembles in the Hippodrome. Justinian comes in and just when he arrived, everybody starts shouting, Nika, the blues and the greens, and they're shouting it at Justinian to conquer him. 30,000 people shouting over and over, Nika, Nika, Nika. Justinian fled to his palace. <laughs> A riot broke out. They emptied the prisons of all the, uh, the arrested people, and they, they swelled their numbers in the riot. The army went out, not really the army, but like the guard went out to try to bring some peace, and uh, people would just drop stuff off roofs to land on their heads. I mean, it was just total chaos. A fire erupted, burned out a hospital with all the patients inside, and then it, the wind whipped up the fire and started burning a significant part of the city, including, uh, as we'll see, uh, one of the most important churches in the city uh, burned during this, the Hagia Sophia. And uh, we get this, the following description of it from Procopius, a historian who was alive at the time. Procopius says, Now the emperor and his court were deliberating as to whether it would be better for them if they remained or if they took to flight in the ships. And many opinions were expressing favoring either course. And the empress Theodora also spoke to the following effect. This is the most famous moment for Theodora in all of Byzantine history, most epic speech. You ready? This is what she said. As to the belief that a woman ought not to be daring among men or to assert herself boldly among those who are holding back from fear, I consider that the present crisis most certainly does not permit us to discuss whether the matter should be regarded in this or in some other way. For in the case of those whose interests have come into the greatest danger, Nothing else seems best except to settle the issue immediately before them in the best possible way. My opinion, then, 
is that the present time, above all others, is inopportune for flight, even though it brings safety. This reminds me of the Braveheart speech in the movie, too. You ready for this? For while it is impossible for a man who has seen the light not also to die, for one who has been an emperor, it is unendurable to be a fugitive. May I never be separated from this purple. And may I not live that day on which those who meet me shall not address me as mistress. If now it is your wish to save yourself, O emperor, there is no difficulty. For we have much money, and there is the sea. Here are the boats. However, consider whether it will not come about after you have been saved that you would gladly exchange that safety for death. For as for myself, I approve a certain ancient saying that royalty is a good burial shroud. That's a famous line. Purple makes the greatest burial shroud. When the queen had spoken thus, all were filled with boldness. And then he stopped saying, oh, should we escape to the sea? Should we escape to the sea? And then he started saying and said, give me Belisarius. The greatest Byzantine general that ever lived was in town. And Justinian called Belisarius, and Belisarius had, what did he have? Just a, a squadron of Scandinavian mercenaries. And he concocted a plan to solve the problem. Belisarius went to the Hippodrome with his troops, fully armored and fully armed, ready for anything. The commander of the bodyguard, a, a, a eunuch named Narsus, blocked all the exits to the Hippodrome. And Belisarius marched in with his troops, and they just started killing people. They just started killing everybody, and the crowd rushed at them, and the crowd, the crowd threw themselves at the soldiers. But the soldiers are trained professionals, fully armed, fully ready for combat, and they just cut through everyone until 30,000 people lay dead in the Hippodrome. Meanwhile the most historic church in Constantinople was burning in flames, the Hagia Sophia. And after the peace was established, because all the, all the writers were dead, <laughs> sorry, Roman peace is, is, is classic. You know, you just kill everyone and now we have peace. Justinian, nobody's going to question him from then on. You know what I mean? Like you question him, you, you shout at him, and you know what? There else is not going to be the rest for years. No more Hippodrome. <laughs> no more sports matches. It's going to be on pause for years because of this. So anyhow, the fire had burned down the Hagia Sophia, this famous church, and Justinian rebuilt it on a massive scale. He got these, these expert architects who devised a way to build the world's largest dome ever made and created the largest interior space on the planet. It was the biggest church for a thousand years until the 1500s, the Hagia Sophia decked out in marble and gold. He spent 20,000 pounds of gold on this church. He had 10,000 people working on it, and when he finished it, he looked at it and he whispered, Solomon, I have surpassed you. Oh. It remained the largest church in the world till 1520, when the Ottomans took over Constantinople. They emulated the style with their mosques. They copied the style of Justinian's church. And this church still stands today in Istanbul. But now it has minarets around it 
after the Muslim style. They converted it to a mosque. That's why they didn't destroy it, if that makes sense. Okay, so Justinian's conquest. Justinian's general, Belisarius, as I already mentioned to you, was the best Byzantine Roman general ever. Okay, this guy was a genius. You give him a handful of soldiers, he will give you Africa. You give him another handful, he'll win back Italy. Just unbelievable, this guy. In 532, Justinian made a peace treaty with the ruler of the Sassanid Empire on the east. That's the Persians, right? The Sassanid. And it freed him to focus on the west. He gave Belisarius 15,000 men and sent him to North Africa. Belisarius took back all of North Africa with 15,000 men. What 400,000 men couldn't do, Belisarius did with 15,000. Procopius says they killed 5 million of the Vandals. Totally won back North Africa for Justinian. That was 533. In 535, Belisarius goes to Sicily. He conquers Sicily and made his way to Italy. In 536, he captures Rome from the Ostrogoths. Belisarius does on behalf of the emperor. Of course, the Ostrogoths then counterattack and he has to hold Rome, which is a lot harder than taking it in the first place. But in 540, Belisarius succeeded in taking Ravenna, which was the real capital, not Rome. Not going to get into all that. But he succeeds in taking over the Italian peninsula. He took the king Vitigus and his wife with him to Constantinople. He, he literally captured the king and his wife and brought them to Justinian. It's like trophies. War broke out again with the Sassanids. It stalled when a plague struck in 541. This was like a classic European plague stuff, 541. 40% of Constantinople died in this plague. Just unbelievable. Justinian himself gets the plague and recovers. He survives the plague. But, you know, the city's decimated. The tax base is decimated. The soldiers are decimated. You know, it's like, it's like the end of days kind of a, a plague that broke out here, Justinian's plague. But he kept going. In 552, Justinian even took back part of Spain so that in the year 555, he had taken back much of the old Roman Empire. And now the Byzantine Empire is starting to look like the old Roman Empire for a little while during the reign of Justinian. And you can do more research on Justinian if you want to know more about it. We know more about him than like most of the Roman emperors. There were a lot of people that wrote about him, and we know a lot of the details of how this person got in trouble with this person. and what the, you know, There's a lot of intrigue and, and whatnot I'm skipping here. All right, let's talk about how this relates to church history. Justinian supported the Chalcedonian definition. Now, the two previous emperors, Emperor Zeno and Emperor Anastasius, both had tolerated and even favored monophysitism. So now Justinian is going to favor diophysitism or Chalcedon. He openly condemned monophysites, and this actually restored the relationship with the Pope of Rome. I didn't have time to get into this with you, but the, the, the Pope had basically excommunicated the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople for a number of years, decades even, and uh, now they're, they're reconnecting. So it's, not, it's called a schism, but it's not like the big one of 1054. Uh, this is a, a little schism, I guess, because it was eventually healed. So Justinian started persecuting the Monophysites. In 553, he held the Second Council of Constantinople. 
As you recall, the first Council of Constantinople was in 381. This is when they defined the Trinity doctrine. This is the second one in the year 553. And the Patriarch of Constantinople requested that the Pope of Rome, a guy named Vigilius, attend. The Pope said he didn't want to attend, so they kidnapped him, put him on a boat, and forced him to come to Constantinople. Then the Pope declined to attend, and, and he said, you can't proceed without me. And so they said, well, we're going to proceed without you. And they proceeded without him. <laughs> and he was kept imprisoned. The Pope was imprisoned because uh, the power was in the East at this time. It's not in the West yet. The Pope had been eventually persuaded to agree. It might have taken some months, but like eventually was forced to sign the council declaration. What did the council find in the year 553? Well, the big thing that Justinian accomplished with this council was condemning the three chapters. And the three chapters are not three chapters of a book, but three collections of writings that were critical of Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril, who I talked about last time, had used some you know, less than Christian tactics in fighting his, his battles, had such a high reputation that these other people that wrote against him were now condemned by the Council of Constantinople, the, the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. So that would include Theodore of Mopsuestia, also certain writings of Theodoret of Cyrus. If you remember, I read his, I don't know what you want to call it, obituary of Cyril last time. It wasn't very friendly. And they also condemned the letter of Ibis to Maris, and they wanted to show that they were pro-Cyril. Cyril is Alexandrian. The Alexandrian church is separated so that maybe the Alexandrian church will rejoin after this council ruled. They didn't, but maybe that was the thought. Justinian also condemned Nestorius, which was uh, not a good idea because like, basically all the Eastern churches were Nestorian, so that wouldn't have brought a, a very much unity. He also condemned Origen of Alexandria. We haven't talked about Origen in forever. He had lived three centuries previously. Like, exactly. He died in 253. It's now 553. Guy's been dead for 300 years. They go through his writings with a fine-tooth comb, and they say, Origen was a heretic, and we condemn him now. <laughs> in 565, Justinian died at 83 years old, but the dual natures controversy did not die in 553. In the year 681, there was a third council of Constantinople that condemned monothelitism. I'll give you the briefest little explanation here. That means one will. So the idea is that some people were saying Christ, because he has the divine side and the human side, has one will because they're united in one person. Others... We're saying, no, he has two wills because the divine nature has a will and the human nature has a will. And so in 681, they decided, no, he has two wills, not one will, but they never conflict. Then in the year 787, at the Second Council of Nicaea, there was a controversy between iconoclasts and iconodules. An icon is a, like a holy painting of a saint or of Christ. You've seen these before. They have a certain style to them. These images or icons were venerated, were honored, were part of the worship service. Some people say, well, that's idolatry. You shouldn't be doing that. 
Other people said, no, it's fine. We're just honoring them. We're not really worshiping them as God. Some people said, oh, well, that icon of Christ, that's monophysite. Because you're trying to portray both his divine and his human natures in one image. And this is 200 years later. 300 years later after uh, Chalcedon. They're still fighting about it. And the other side says, oh, no, no, no. It's Nestorian. That, that icon is Nestorian because you're separating out just his human nature. And you're just worshiping the human side of Christ. You're not worshiping both sides. So they're still thinking in these terms. In 787, they decide on the advice of John of Damascus, it's okay to have icons. We can worship the icons. It's no big deal. And then in 843, iconoclasm erupted again, and it was again condemned, this time by a different empress, Theodora, who upheld the ruling of 787. And as I mentioned before, if you want to read a well-crafted history of the Byzantine Empire, see Lars Brownworth's excellent book, Lost to the West, which goes way beyond what I'm covering with you. I'm just going up to Justinian, just to the 500s, because we are in a class on early church history of the first 500 years. And uh, so uh, if you want to learn more of the after story, you can read his book. There are also other really good books on the Byzantine Empire that give a lot more detail than this one. But I, I did want to bring things to a close here for this class and say all this began because they declared that Christ was of the same substance as the Father. And that snowball continued to roll down the hill and grow bigger and bigger and cause more and more division century after century after century. Christians began to persecute each other, even using violence. What a mess. What a mess. It's so embarrassing. I remember when my church history professor told our class when I was at Boston University of the controversy of the 4th century. He was so embarrassed because he believed in the results that they got. He was you know, so-called so orthodox. You know, he believed in the doctrine of the Trinity and everything else. Uh, but he's just so embarrassed at how they got there. And it is embarrassing. I think we should be embarrassed of the embarrassing things our ancestors in the faith did. But it's still the truth. You should know the truth. The truth is, is good for you. It really is, even if it's embarrassing, because then it will, it will help you not to do the same thing yourself. That's the power of a negative example. There's no, there's no benefit in whitewashing the history and saying, oh, this is all this holy event, this, the Holy Spirit was involved. What Holy Spirit? There's no Holy Spirit. This is just people fighting with each other and not listening to each other. This is something that shouldn't be whitewashed. My suggestion however, is to get back to the Bible. I think the Bible is, is the one anchor we have that doesn't change throughout all the chaos of all the developments of all the centuries. You can go back to the scriptures and you can see what the original was. And go back to that. Restore authentic Christianity. But we're, we're out of time for starting a quest to do that right now. We've been through 500 years together. That's a long time. It kind of feels like, I don't know if it feels like 500 years to you. It feels like 500 years to me. And uh, I hope you've profited from getting this overview. And I hope that there will be some areas where you will say to yourself, oh, I really want to do more research in this. And, and now because you've been through this class, you will say, oh, well, you know, let me check the notes on that and see what references are there. Or let me see, you know, search Wikipedia or whatever you want to just get your handle on like wh what what's going on at that period of time. And then, for the love of God, go to the primary sources. Find what they actually said. Don't read what some 21st century person said about them. I mean, you can start there. It's fine to start there. 
Everybody uses Wikipedia, including me. But then go to the primary sources and see what's really true, not what people's opinion is. All right, let's review. In 293, Diocletian split the administration of the Roman Empire into east and west, appointing an Augustus in each. In 330, Constantine founded Constantinople in the old town of Byzantium, making it his administrative capital. While the west fell to Germanic Aryans and the Huns, the Roman Empire in the east continued until 1453. Byzantine emperors played barbarian warlords off each other in an attempt to keep them from taking Constantinople. And they did the same with the Muslims later. From the 4th century onwards, Byzantines embraced relics and pilgrimages to holy places. Byzantine Emperor Justinian made a lasting impact on law via the work of Tribonian to identify, harmonize, and codify Roman law. Justinian succeeded mostly due to the military genius of Belisarius, to retake northern Africa, the Italian peninsula, and part of Spain. Justinian built and improved several churches, the most notable of which was his renovation of the Hagia Sophia, which means holy wisdom. In 553, the Second Council of Constantinople condemned three writings critical of Cyril of Alexandria, to reunite with the Egyptian and Syrian churches, but ultimately failed. In 681, the Third Council of Constantinople condemned monothelitism, affirming that Christ had two wills. In 787, the Second Council of Nicaea affirmed the veneration of icons, denying icons either were too monophysite or Nestorian. Well, that's about it. It's been 22 sessions. We've covered roughly 500 years We've seen a lot, and I hope it helped you to get an overview of, and I, and I believe it's exciting, an action-packed period of time. So thanks for joining me on this journey in early church history. Well, that brings this episode and this entire class to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your feedback on episode 504, which is called Byzantine Empire from Constantine to Justinian. And let us know your questions and comments. I wanted to read out a listener comment. This is from YouTube from the Giver 4934 who writes, Just like biblical and historical evidence proves that Jesus and his apostles were vegetarians, biblical and historical evidence also proves that the Trinity, atonement, original sin, and hell are very late misinterpretations and are not supported by the early creed, hence it is not a part of Christianity. Pray that Allah revives Christianity both inside and out, preserves and protects it, and makes its message be witnessed by all the people, but at the right moment, place, and time. The secret text of the Bible says, you shall know them by their fruits. So too that I say to my Christian brothers and sisters to be fruitful and multiply best regards from a Muslim and then he puts in brackets, line of Ismail, which is equivalent to Ishmael. This is an interesting comment. This comment is a little unusual because it's sort of like equally saying that we're right to believe the way we believe, and we're wrong to believe the way that we believe. And this is kind of typical for Muslim fans. Well, let me just take it from the top. We'll work through it. He says, that biblical and historical evidence proves that Jesus and his apostles were vegetarians. 
um, what evidence is this? What have, what are we talking about here? Uh, and this is maybe a good point for all of us. If you're going to use the word evidence, if you're going to make a claim, then it's incumbent upon you to cite the reference, to cite the primary source. Is this something that the Quran claims? Is this something that the New Testament claims? Which New Testament book? Which chapter? Which verse? I don't think Jesus and his apostles were vegetarians. They ate the Passover. Passover includes lamb. So I don't see how that is even a possible theory unless I'm just totally missing something that the Quran teaches that I'm not familiar with. Uh, and then he says, Trinity, atonement, original sin, and hell. Uh, these are all late interpretations. They're not a part of Christianity. This, again, is one of these things that comes up a lot with Islam, where the Quran teaches that Jesus never died, that God put the appearance of Jesus on Judas or something like that, that uh, he never actually died, God would never allow his prophet to die, that sort of thing. When he says atonement, he's saying he doesn't believe in any theory of atonement. And I'm sorry, but like this is a universal belief among Christians. I don't care who you are. I don't care what sect you belong to, what denomination. If you're a Roman Catholic or you're in some tiny little group with fringe views that is convinced that your leader is the second coming of Christ, we all, all believe Jesus died for our sins in some sense. You know, the question is like, well, what do we mean by that? It's not a question of, did he die for our sins? Did Jesus die and make atonement for us? Uh, it's just, there's just too many verses in the Bible that say that. And there are all different kinds of theories about how exactly Jesus dying did something, how exactly God credited that to us, and what it all means. But yeah, all Christians, to my knowledge, believe Jesus and his apostles were not vegetarians and do believe in some form of atonement. So there's just a lot of misinformation here. But I don't want to be too harsh on this commenter because he does end by by calling us brothers and sisters and telling us to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, so, so it's a little confusing what's going on here. D- does that mean that Muslims believe that all Unitarian Christians are going to be saved? Is that what he? Is that what their belief is? Do they believe all Christians are going to be saved? Do they believe all people are going to be saved? Or do they believe it's just all meritorious? If you have more good deeds than bad deeds, then you're good. You know, and I'm sure that there are a range of views on that question. Just like within Christianity, if you ask a Christian, can a Muslim be saved if that Muslim lives righteously according to the light he or she has been given? Can somebody who never heard the message of salvation be saved? So uh, these are these are interesting questions. I have been working a little bit on Islam in the last in the last week or two because I am going to be teaching a class on other religions next week at Fuel, which is a youth event. A couple hundred teenagers in Indiana. Well, they're not from Indiana. They're, they're from all over. And I'm bringing my kids and a number of other teens from our church, and we're driving out for a week, and we have classes, and workshops, and sermons, and lots and lots of music, and sports, and other activities. So you may hear something about Islam on this podcast. Uh, You may not. (laughs) I don't really have any plans to do anything with the content. But it is fascinating. 
And uh, I certainly have had a lot of Muslim friends over the years. And, uh, you know, my first college experiences, my first two colleges, actually, I studied engineering and uh, had lots of Muslim friends and spent a lot of time with them. Used to drive around with a Muslim who loved to play the Quran in the car on the car ride to school every morning. And he was kind enough to give me a ride. Uh, at that time, I was taking buses, and it was, you know, taking me like an hour to get there, and he'd, he'd get me there in 20 minutes, but I'd, I'd have to listen to the Quran sung and then translate it into English, which, you know, it was fun. It is an area of interest, and, uh, you know, I'd be curious to find a competent apologist, Christian apologist, who engages with Islam, who's not abrasive, who's not going to tear me to pieces for (laughs) holding different views than uh, so-called orthodoxy of Christianity. So, uh, yeah, if you know somebody that would be a good candidate for that, uh, you know, it is is certainly fascinating. It it is a religion that is on the rise, only about 1% in the United States, by the way, but it is on the rise in the world at large, over a billion people, so it's certainly worth engaging with. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that on our website. Um, feverishly working on a paper to submit to the Unitarian Christian Alliance as part of their conference. So I've been getting lots of resources and combing through them, and I, I can't really say much more about it at this time, but I'll let you know once uh, either get accepted or rejected so that you know I, I don't want to tip the balance one way or the other. It is a blind review. But uh, I will say this, that if you, dear listener, uh, would like to present a paper at the UCA conference in October, the deadline is a-coming. I believe the deadline is August 1st, and you can get more information about that if you want to submit a paper. It doesn't matter if you have a, a college degree. It doesn't matter if you have a big following online. What really matters is the quality of your work. Uh, the papers are double-blind reviewed and selected on the basis of their own merits, not on the basis of uh, who likes you or doesn't like you. So if you would be interested in doing the work, or maybe you have something that you could polish up and send in, I think it's a great opportunity to get your work out in front of a wider audience, not just in person, there'll be a couple hundred people there in person, but also online, uh, because these presentations are published on YouTube And uh, Lord willing, in the future, we will have some sort of written publication as well. Uh, At least I hope that's the case. And so if you are looking to submit a paper, or maybe you were thinking about it and you forgot, you still got a couple weeks, but uh, you might want to get working on it. You can submit that at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org. And on that page, you have to scroll down just on the home page until you get to the post that says, Call for UCA Conference Papers. And there, Dale Tuggy lists out all the specifications required for submission. And that needs to be emailed to conference at unitarianchristianalliance.org. So anyhow, figured I'd let you know, listeners, those of you out there who are looking to present, looking to get included, hope to see you there. Well, that's it for today. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.